This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmood, your co-host at Nomad Futurist from Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your other co-host from Brooklyn, New York. Hello, this is Mary Jane Horn from Boston, Massachusetts. Mary Jane, thank you very much for joining the Nomad Futures podcast. Let's start with a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and your background. Sure. So I am an engineer by education. I graduated back in the late 80s from Northeastern University with a degree in computer and electrical engineering, which um, if you want to take me back a little bit, I stood in line at the office with my box of punch cards waiting for them to compile my program so I could tell where the errors were in my software. So not that I'm dating myself at all, but I'm dating myself. So that's where I started. But just to give a little bit of background to understand where I am today, I actually had a co-op job when I was in college and I worked for the federal government doing programming um, aboard the nuclear submarines. I actually programmed their vertical launch systems. In fact, when they hired me to work in fire control, I thought they were going to give me a fire extinguisher. I had no idea what it meant. But um, so I, I started out in the software side. I then went to the hardware side and went to a small technology company where I showed up one Friday and they were like 300 people because they had a layoff. So that was my first foray into what technology companies do, how they staff up when they're, you know, not doing well and they get rid of a bunch of people, you suddenly wear 9,000 hats. So that was fun and challenging. But when I graduated, my dad said, you know, you really need to find a great job where you can retire and you can collect the pension and you'll be great for the rest of the life. So I went to the phone company. So my phone company, um, was a great experience from the perspective that I was able to have 10 jobs in 14 years. Um, I was able to do a variety of different things uh, as I moved around a lot because I would have to say the two pieces of advice that have really sustained me in my career came from two people at the phone company. One was move around as much as you can at the lowest levels of management or not even management, but as worker bee, and learn how the company works in whole because it's going to make you a much more valuable employee. Second piece of advice was when I was trying to get promoted to director, my boss said to me, why do you think you should be promoted to director? And I said, well, I've been a you know second level manager a long time and I know I can run these things. And she said, what skills have you demonstrated to tell everybody that you're capable of being a director? And I thought for a minute and said, hmm, I guess I really haven't done that, have I? So great pieces of advice, which I then took into the rest of my career. So from there, I you know, worked in a bunch of other industries. I've worked in cable. I've worked in telecom. I've worked in data centers. I've worked in Australia. I've worked in Tokyo. I've worked around the world. But same premise, working on what are those skills that I learned from those people the important things like leadership, the important things like understanding how the full business works, all of those kinds of things have brought me to today where I just finished wrapping up an assignment at INAP, but I have worked in several companies over the last bunch of years where I go in, look at the big picture, 
figure out what's working and what's not working, make recommendations on how to make it better, then I usually have to be the one who pulls the trigger and gets it done and, um, you know, transform a business, get it back on track and get them humming along and, and fix their P&L. So long, short, long way around the, the track, I have uh, done so many different things because I was provided those opportunities. But that leads me to today where I'm able to help companies really write the ship. Wow, uh, an interesting and, uh, and and winding journey indeed. You know, we had a uh, we had a guest on on the podcast earlier this week that, that we recorded um, that basically started their careers by starting their own company. And you know, I'm in the same boat, right? I started my career by by starting my own company because I, I didn't know any better. Um, and at the time, you know, just you know, kind of the, the turn of the century, you know, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. Um, it just seemed like an interesting you know space to get into, but. You know, what I mentioned on that podcast and I think is is informed by your experience is how beneficial do you think it is to who you are today, to your career, that you've been able to see all of those different elements of how kind of the sausage is made, for lack of a better metaphor? Um, you know, how has that, that, that perspective informed you and, and, and been able to take you to, to various areas of your career? I think that is the bottom line, right? I think that is the most important piece of how I got to where I am is understanding, being able to take a step back, being able to look at the big picture, being able to look at how everybody interacts with everyone else, how what you do in your department affects everyone across the board. And there's a lot of companies that truly don't understand that. A lot of big companies that don't truly understand that, just like they don't understand why they do things a certain way in their process. And it's because they've always done it that way. So being a person who can take a step back and look at the big picture is really important. I don't care what industry you're in because what they end up doing is bringing me in and they go, Hey, here's my network. Can you fix it? And I go, well, what does it look like? And I go, who built that? And more, you know, it's, it's a reactionary type of an approach. Oh, I need more capacity here. Let me buy a circuit. Oh, I need more capacity there. Let me buy a circuit. Instead of taking that step back going, is this what I really want this spaghetti or would it be better if I did it another way? And if I did it another way, what does that do for my customers? What does that do for my network reliability? What does that do for X, Y, and Z? So having that ability to take that step back because you can see the bigger picture and how it affects everyone else in the company, I think is an important, um, is an important thing to learn. And I don't, there are some people who just can't do it. And then there are other people who are exceptionally good at it. And the people that are exceptionally good at it um, can write their ticket and go lots of different places. Right. And for the people that aren't very good at it, they bring in Mary Jane. <laughs> well, they try. <laughs> and I'm very happy to help because that's the, you know, that's probably the favorite um, jobs that I've ever had are the ones where they come to me and they say, hey, this is broken, but, you know, we can't fix it and it can't be done. Oh, you can't be done. Great. That makes me happy. I'll say one more thing, which is that the, what I love about this industry so much, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't like to belabor it, but, you know, when you get in here different from finance or, or, or the legal world or, or, or whatnot, is you can actually see how your changes are impactful to the organization. You know, you can actually see it as opposed to just being a cog in a wheel. Um, if you have that great idea, you know, you can, you can go, it's such a, it's such a, at, a, at a, such an early phase that if you put in place something, you can actually see people working faster and you can just feel that you've made that difference and, you know, your involvement, your participation actually helps. Oh, absolutely. That's the best thing about this industry. And I remember 
early on on conference calls with my kids in the car while I was taking them to soccer or something. And they would listen to my conversations, obviously. And then they would say, mom, why do you love your job? It sounds so awful. And I'm like, I love what I do. It's challenging. It's exciting. There's always some other problem that needs to be fixed. You fix one, you find another one. You got to work on that one. It's always something new. And that's what I love to do is just find those things that help make a company more profitable, make it more effective, make it more streamlined, whatever that is that they need me to do is, uh, and it's always different, right? So sometimes it's a network and sometimes it's a process. I just finished combining all of the support organizations into one group because they had a support organization that did Colo, a support organization that did cloud, a support organization that did manage hosting, a support organization that did um, network. And I thought, people keep getting transferred between these groups because they call the wrong one. The organizational chart for what a customer had to do to call in was like 5,000 pages long because you didn't know who you were going to call. I'm like, we got to get this down to one number, global support, one team, cross-trained people, get everybody on the same page, have them all working together, transfer to one another within the same team is not a hold on let me transfer you dump the call right so just getting people to work together has gone over so well customers get better service employees are now learning the other products so they feel more valuable it's just a, a better way to do things right so it's not just the technology or the network but it's also the people the processes and it's also how you change to get there as well right so leadership um, demonstrating it by, you know, by your actions, but inspiring people, giving them a voice to input into what's going to change, how it should change, getting their ideas, listening to them, how, how long it's going to take to get it done. Because one of the problems we have in management today is people say, well, I need it, but I need it yesterday. Well, yesterday isn't always the right answer. You need to talk to the people who actually have to do it to find out, is it, you know, one month, six months, a year? Um, and understanding that what they're telling you is important to them and that you're acknowledging that their input is critical for the success of this project. So um, understanding who who is leading and who's not leading, put the right people in place, get the right teams together. All of it's part of the big picture. And it's all what makes uh, you know working in companies very exciting for me. Mary, so switching gears just for a second, women in technology has been a topic of discussion for the last decade or so. What was the driving factor uh, for a young gal to get into engineering when there was nobody really into that space? So funny, my dad's an engineer. So it was kind of, I was very good at math and I went into computer science. And then, you know, I met my boyfriend in college and I said, hey, this is fun. Um, I like computer science, but I think I might want to switch to engineering. Next thing you know, we both switched to engineering and I liked it a lot. I liked it better. I didn't like um, sitting at a computer all day, typing on a screen. I wanted to be able to get out and blow things up. And I did quite a few of those circuit boards in the lab. But, you know, just getting your hands on things and being able to you know, create things that moved and building robotic things. And, you know, the, the university I went to right now, um, you know, built the first robot that could actually climb a ladder because they're, um, you know, trying to get robots to Mars that can build, you know, infrastructure so that when they get out there, they'll be able to have, you know, a shelter. And so they're, you know, developing these robots. Well, we developed the first robot that could climb a ladder, which is huge for able to get the structure higher than, you know, really short for short people. 
so I, I think that those kinds of things excited me, those kinds of things, um, and, and the people and the professors varied, you know, some discouraged you because you were a girl, what did you belong doing in engineering? And then there were the professors who were like, oh, you're going to be awesome at this. And so you just have to take the good with the bad. Not everybody is encouraging. You'll find that through your whole career, but liking the fact that it was something that was always changing, there was always something new, that it was very technical, that I got to use my math skills and my sort of logical thinking, A, then B, then C, then D. So it was the perfect industry for me. How did I end up in telecom and data centers and network? I have no idea. Um, I think that uh, in one of the speeches that I gave at a, a conference one time, it was uh, women in technology for the cable industry. They asked about um, goals, how to set goals. And there were three of us on the panel. And I thought to myself, I was brand new at a cable company. And I was, you know, I wasn't quite sure. But I saw the questions. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I can wing that. The first person got up. She worked 30 years at ESPN. And she said, so this is how I set my goals. First, I have a project goal. And then I set sub-project goals. And then I take those project goals. And then I break those down into other goals. And then I make my goals, which make my goals, which make my goals. And I thought, Oh, no, that's not the answer I had. Then the girl next to me, who had worked 18 years at a different cable company, said, what I do every um, January is I sit with my husband and we make a list. This is what I'm going to do to the house. This is what I'm going to do for the kids. This is what car we're going to have. This is what it. And I thought, oh, I didn't do that either. So then it came to me and I said, well, let's talk about setting goals. Well, when I got out of school, I had a goal and that was to make money, save up, buy a house, you know, maybe get married, things like that. And then I started working and then it was like, Ooh, somebody asked me if I wanted to do that. Yes, I want to do that. That sounds exciting. So then I changed my goals and then, you know, career after career change. It's like, Ooh, I like that. Let me go change my goals again. So my goals are an ever evolving sort of process for me. It's not a, I established a goal that I wanted to retire before I was 55. I just say, I'm going to keep working until it's not fun anymore. And I'm going to go find something exciting to do. So my goal could be in cable. My goal could be in data centers. My goal could be in anything. I mean, anything. So you really need to just be flexible and be able to find when something sounds really great and hope it is. And if it's not, guess what? Change your goals again. So I, I made that comment. And then later after the conference, as I was walking away, all these people chased me down the hallway. And they were like, oh, my goodness, that was so great. And I was like, okay. So I had the right answer, not the I make a list in January. <laughs> but really, people want to, you know, they just want to understand, like, what they're doing is okay. That it's okay to want to be changing my job because I'm really not having any fun at it. And that it's not expected of me to have to stay here for 2.3 years so that I can, you know, make it not look good on my resume. I think that's that's the most important uh, characteristic that people forget. I say it all the time. You know, it's it, it's easy to do your job when you don't look at it as work, right? I mean, if it's oh, fun, yeah. if it's part, you spend so much of your time working that if you don't enjoy it, it's just miserable. So you know, just like your tastes change, and you know, I probably wasn't you know as into spicy food as I am today when I was six years old. Your tastes evolve, you know, as you go through your career. So if you don't give yourself the freedom to follow, not necessarily your passion. I'm not saying everyone needs to be a, a starving artist, but you have to follow what about you have to be able to look inward about what about what you do all day is enjoyable to you, and when it stops being fun, you know, give yourself the freedom to pivot. 
Absolutely. I remember going to my CEO at one point because I've worked for the same gentleman for a few different companies now. And I said to him, the party's over. It's time to go to a new party. And he's like, no, 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 you can't go to a new party. And I'm like, no, no, you really have to understand, like all things in life, like when you go to a, a party when there's a bunch of colleagues there, you got to know when it's your time to go, right? So you don't want to be there and you stay too late at the party for any reason whatsoever. It's the same thing in your career. When you find that you've been pigeonholed and what you really like to do, like I like to do, which is the transformation piece, um, when the transformation's over, it's time to move on to the next challenge. And not just because, um, you know, you're, you don't want to work at the same company or you don't like the people anymore, but you have to do what's good for you. I mean, the people when I left INAP were calling me up and they were like, we're so upset you're leaving. It's like, don't be upset because I'm doing what's right for me. Now, if you love what you're doing, stay. If you want to try something new, you know, I've, I've tried to drill this into, be happy. You got to be happy. You don't have to love your job specifically every day-to-day -day function, but you got to like the people you work with. You got to feel like you're being valued. You got to feel like what you're doing every day is making a difference in the company. And if you have that pride and you have that sense of uh, people really appreciate what I'm doing and I really love being a leader and I love doing what I'm doing, then there's no reason for you to go. But different people have different motivations. The most difficult thing to find for anybody, uh, what's the personal satisfaction? What's the ultimate goal? What makes one happy, right? Mm -hmm. Looking back in time to where you're today, like we talked about earlier, women in tech, not a lot, of, a lot of women in the past, but there has been a significant increase now. What was the biggest transition that you saw and or what was the driving factor and where we're at with this today? Is it more acceptable? Is it more of a norm that you're seeing that more women are getting into our space? So if I think back to when I was in school, I was in school with a lot of type A women, which is great because that's the only way you could survive in the industry back then because we did hit a lot of um, negativity. But there were, like I said, a lot of professors who were very encouraging. And I'd like to think that my children are in the workforce today and I had, you know, two boys and my boys both work for women. And so for them to, to be working for women is that's just their boss because their boss happens to be a female, that's not a big deal. In the old days, oh, you're working for a woman? Um, I, I believe my father-in-law, who worked almost 50 years at one of the phone companies, quit because he had to work for a woman. So things are different today. The people that are in the workforce today have seen their moms, their aunts, their cousins, whomever, do phenomenal things or, or be a leader or, you know, inspire people or do a great job. So they don't think of you as a woman or a man. They think of you as a person who's leading, right? Or a person who's my boss. And I think that shift um, and more and more smart women are actually driving to the end. Like a couple of people that I went to college with stopped working when they got married and they just became, you know, work at home people. One changed industries and she became a nurse. Um, so it all depends on, you know, people and their passion and is technology their passion? Is, you know, working in this environment their passion or is it something else? And I think they went to school for that because they were good at it. And then they decided when they were doing it, they didn't really like it. So I think more and more people really loved it and really stuck with it. But I think also in the workforce today are more accepting people. Aside from some of the larger companies who are still the old regime. Um, I think today, especially in midsize and especially small businesses, you know, anybody who can get it done, you're welcome. That's outstanding. What advice would you give the younger generation and or what would you have done differently 
if you were to look back at your career? <sighs> what would I have done differently? <clears throat> so when I went to leave the phone company after 14 years, I, um, before I left, I went to the president, who was a woman, of my division, and I said, hey, there's an opening in engineering for a director job um, back in my, you know, my niche. Um, and I was wondering if you could put in a good word for me because you told me, you know, if I ever needed any help, would you, would you help me out? <clears throat> she said, well, if you go there, who's going to do what you do for me? And I thought to myself, hmm, so how many people said that to you on your way up? Right? Probably nobody. So I think reading people, understanding people, understanding people's motivations, I really wish I could have developed that sooner. Understanding emotional intelligence. When someone is looking at you going, that's a really great idea. And you're looking at them going, eh, they don't think that's a really good idea. Yeah, they're going to just kibosh this whole thing. I wish I had had the ability to actually um, read people sooner to realize how important that was in my career, to realize when somebody's talking to you, are they really in support of you or not, regardless of industry. Um, just because body language, um, what they're saying, how it's coming out of their mouth, how they're looking at you, uh, it means so much. I wish I had known that sooner um, so I could have jumped out of the phone company sooner. However, Timing was what timing was. I mean, come on, I left in 99 and I went to a startup of 45 people and then the crash hit in 2000. Talk about timing. My timing is always impactful. <laughs> but the company survived. We continued. We grew. We took that company from $100,000 in revenue in 99 to $64.5 million in 05. So there's still a way to survive. Take your challenges and still run with them. If it's something you're passionate about and something you make a difference on, it doesn't mean the company's going to die. But if it does, there's another one right around the corner looking for your help. Um, don't be afraid to jump ship like I was and do it sooner. Um, really learn what you're passionate about. And if it's, um, you know, transforming companies or it's engineering. As my dad used to say, the world needs brain surgeons and the world needs ditch diggers, right? You figure out what it is you want to do and don't be afraid to change it. If you decide, I thought that's what I wanted to do, but not so much. So I'm actually going back to school for my paralegal degree because I read contracts all day long, every day. And I said, you know what? Maybe some, at some point I'm going to, you know, I, I don't know. I just need to learn something new today. So I decided to go back to school for something else. So always be looking to learn something new. Always be looking to, is this fun for me? Is it not fun for me? Is this challenging? I mean, you know, life, you, like you said, you spend so much time doing your job. You just got to really love what you're doing. So if, if there's one or two things that stand in your career as for us, you know, those biggest learning experiences that have defined you, or what makes you unique or exceptional? What would you say those would be? So I'll, I'll give you a current one just because it's fresh in my mind. I um, in, in this whole taking over the support team um, when I was at INAP, I went in and I realized that the support team was, um, the leadership was not where it needed to be. So I had to go out and, and let the director go. So I found someone to replace him. I let the director go. And one of the employees in Atlanta said, who was a manager, oh, I don't care what she says. I'm going to do it the way the other guy wanted to do it because, you know, uh, he was right. And I, you know, I don't know who she thinks she is. And I thought to myself, he's a really smart guy, but this was a really dumb thing to say out loud, right? So 
do I want to invest in that employee? Do I want to try to change his mind? How am I going to do it? How long do I let him sit there? Is he going to be a cancer in the organization or am I going to be able to turn him and um, make him part of the team? So through time, changing things, you know, realigning our processes, making things better, making people happier, our turnover rates stopped, you know, to almost nothing, uh, you know, just making him part of the decisions, getting him involved in, in how we needed to, you know, combine organizations together from the different products. He did such a fantastic job. I promoted him to director. He was so, uh, it, he totally did a, you know, a 180 changed everything that he was thinking. He suddenly realized, you know what, there is a better way to do this than what the other guy was saying. And when I left, he called, he was the first person to call me practically crying because he was so upset that I was leaving because he wanted me to continue to, you know, make more changes and, and get them going. And everything was still kind of new with everybody working together. And he wanted to make sure everything stayed going really well. And he was worried if somebody came in and took my place, it might not um, continue that way. So for me, taking somebody who absolutely hated me on day one to a person who was desperate to try to keep me around um, is, is what I consider one of my greatest accomplishments. People, getting people promoted, getting people to understand what they do is so important and how they treat other people so that leading by example. So are you doing that with your team? Are you telling your team they're awesome? Are you getting their input when you go to make changes? Are you doing those things? I'm hoping that that's the legacy I left behind in that organization. And, um, you know, so the folks in Seattle, where I had decimated the team, I went out there, they came in my office one at a time, spent an hour with me, asking me questions about their career and how I got to where I am and what could they do? And could I be their mentor? And could we, could we, could we, could we? And then when I spoke at one of the events in uh, Seattle, they all wanted to come. I spent two grand on tickets so they could all come and watch me talk because I'm thinking, this is really boring. You don't really want to do it. They're like, no, 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 we really want to do this. We want to be there. We want to see what this is all about. We want to hear you. We want to see what you're talking about. So they all came to see me. So this is what um, you know, I try to teach them is out of a bad situation, you have to look at it for what it is. Now, not all bad situations are truly bad. So give it some time, give people the benefit of the doubt, see what you can learn from the situation. And who knows, it could be way better than what you thought was okay. It's amazing. You know, the, one, one thing that you touched on um, earlier is, you know, you talked about when you first coming in, your dad told you, you know, to um, get with a company that you can retire with. And you spent, what, 14, 15 years at your first company and you have friends and obviously colleagues that have spent, you know, decades, in some cases, multiple decades um, at, at the same company. And these days in this workforce, that's just not the way things work, right? Kids that go to work today, maybe, you know, the, the millennials, which I think are 39 now, which is, I can't believe millennials are 39 now. Um, um, you know, that, there's, there's a lot more turnover. There's, they, they tend to stay at a job a year, two years, maybe five years seems like a long time. How do you think that, that, that distinction, that difference with the way people used to work and the way they work now, um, what, what do you think that speaks to? Do you think it's, it's better that way? It's, it's fresher? Do you think people are, you know, moving jobs too often and, and just having, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side uh, idea? What are your thoughts on that? 
Oh, well, I think a couple of different things. So one, I think there's still kids out there that think that they're going to come in, make big salaries, get promoted and, you know, make more money for doing less work. And I think those are always going to be job hoppers and you're not going to be able to avoid them. Secondly, so, you know, and I'm going to use my older son as an example. So he's working in a company um, where he took their training manual. He trains technical training and he took their training manual and um, they said to him, well, you know, comment on this. This is, you know, the, the first level of training. He works on giant printing press training. And um, he brought it back the next day and it was like a quarter of the size. And they went, what did you do with all the pages? And he said, well, why am I going to talk to them about what I'm going to show them? Why don't I just show them? And they went, oh, but we're not sure we can do that. We're not sure we're allowed to take those pages out. And he goes, well, they're all going to be sleeping in my class. They're not going to be listening. And I'm just telling them what I'm going to show them. I don't understand why you want me to do it that way. Well, large companies can't necessarily make changes like that very fast. So I think kids who are new in the workforce, who have great ideas and they want to make a change and they want to be recognized for, you know, positive influence in a company are getting stymied because the company can't be that flexible or react that fast are going to get frustrated and are going to look. So I think it depends on making the right choice of the company and the fit making the right choice on their leadership to help you, support you, train you, back you on ideas and, and hopefully get you to the next level. But, you know, I think it's a combination too. And then there's always going to be the kids that are going to just jump ship because the industry's going really well. There's a lot of jobs and I can make five more dollars at the next company. And then they're going to go to the next company and realize, well, these $5 wasn't worth it because I don't really like this job. And then they're going to go jump to another one. So I think it's, it's, it all depends on the child, the situation, you know, the employee, the situation, the, where they're going. I call them children, but you mentioned they're 39. <laughs> it scares me. Uh, but, you know, I think across the board, it, there's not one answer. I think it's very specific to uh, people in jobs. My, my daughter, my um, daughter works in insurance. And... She has gone from, she, um, she didn't go to college, well, she dropped out of college, she didn't like it, she went into insurance, and now she's doing extremely well, she's managing a whole insurance team. And I said to her, this is great, where are you going to go from here? Well, there's really nowhere to go from there, because that's probably um, the, the top of where she's going to be able to go in that size company, because they've been gobbled up and gobbled up and gobbled up, because there's really no more opportunity for her. So trying to coach her to say, well, what do you want to do? Are you going to be happy doing this for the rest of your life? And what are your real goals? What do you really want to do? Do you want to own your insurance company someday? What exactly do you want to do? It starts fundamentally there. Some people just want to be employees. Some people want to own their own company. It, you really got to sit down and think about what's going to make me happy. Me working for myself, does that make me happy? Oh, yes. Me working for a big company, does that make me happy? Oh, no. Working somewhere in between where I can go in and work for a while and then, you know, do something different. Perfect for me. Not perfect for everybody else. You got to look inside and say, what's good for me? Is it something I want to be challenged every day? Is it something where I just want to do the same thing every day? Is it something where I have the ability to grow to the nth degree and I could become, you know, COO someday? Or is it something that I'm going to only ever make it to manager and I'm okay with that? You just need to be aware of and take a good look at where you are. And oh, by the way, the grass is not always greener on the other side. So that's a perfect segue into digital transformation. The old guard has been sitting and you know, managing the business with the bums and seats. 
So it's transitioned now to where there's more information available to the younger generation. They can make potentially smarter decisions. They can evaluate situations, content, people, and the environment. Over the last four to five months, we have transitioned significantly into a hockey stick effect, particularly because of COVID-19. What do you predict on a go-forward basis to the subject that we just talked about uh, will apply to the younger generation? Are they going to be moving to uh, other jobs? Are they going to be looking for opportunities where they can work from home, work from anywhere sort of a thing, improve their lifestyle, the cost of living, and or even start new ventures? So I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to go back to 1992. I had my first son and I was working for the phone company and I was the first person to work from home. They came to my house. They brought me a computer, a printer, um, everything I needed, installed more lines in my house so I could work from home because they were desperate. I was working on very large business accounts. I was technical consultant at the time. And they said, we can't afford for you to be out for six months. We need you to get back to work. So what if you work five days from home? Okay, that sounds like I could try that. So it started out five days from home, then it became, you know, four days from home, then it became three days from home. But I was glad to have the opportunity. So 1992, I was working from home. They saw a need and they needed me to do it. And they adapted for me. And then other people started working from home as well that had other um, home requirements. And then they started realizing this isn't so bad. So that department was good. And why is it? Because of the leadership. The leadership said, I have a need and I need to be able to adapt. So how am I going to do that? I had to let people work from home. This is nothing new. Now people are adapting because they need their employees to still be productive and they still need to be able to work from home. I interviewed with a company um, that needed something from me uh, recently in the last three months and virtually none of their people were working from home. They required all of them to go into the office every day and the CEO in a statement said publicly, which he took a bashing on, people are more productive when they're at their desk. Well, that would be no company I wanted to work for. So um, the old guard is still in some of them. You have to know which ones. I think people are realizing as time goes on and they've been forced to have their employees work remotely that, hey, you know, productivity hasn't really fallen off. Or if it has, here's what I need to do to fix it. And those folks that are going to embrace this change, and maybe it's not every day, but now you're going to let people work from home two to three days a week. I think those companies are the ones that are going to find more people flocking to them uh, because you're giving the person who has to commute in that Atlanta traffic, like I had to do when I was uh, in uh, Atlanta, staying at my son's house and, and working downtown, that it took me an hour and a half to two hours to get to work every day. And nobody wants to, you know, an hour and a half to two hours to work every day, unless I took public transportation, which, you know, is a great way to spread COVID. Um, you know, I didn't want to take the train in every day. So I drove the hour and a half to two hours every day each way. And if I was lucky, it was two hours. And it, that People are not happy doing that. People are not going to do that long term. If you're going to force people to do that long term, then you're going to have a lot of turnover, right? So I think employers, you know, are now realizing that their employees are happier um, when they get a break. Uh, I used to think working from home was almost like vacation because I didn't have to get dressed up and go in every day. And if I wanted to wear my bunny slippers, I could. So this was, you know, this was me being actually more productive because I work more hours and I go on more calls that are productive because people aren't popping in my office, asking me another question, pulling me off, telling me about their day and showing me cute pictures of their dog. And, um, you know, I just think that companies that are willing to 
really evaluate what happened. And we talked data transformation. What does the data show me? What does the data show me about the people, the productivity, who did more? What did I actually miss out on? What is my revenue looking like? And how much of that is attributed to just the fact that people are working from home versus people are just not buying anything right now because they're stuck at home. So we, we all need to interpret the data and look at it for our individual companies. But I think that companies that are not going to allow working from home and flexible work arrangements are the ones that are going to suffer in the long term. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've actually seen significant improvement efficiencies. I was like on a call last week whereby this particular institution, they have been managing by the number of bums in the seats. And them being in California, they had to put everybody out of the office, right? So everyone's not working from home. And the CEO of the company, uh, we were on a call last week, said, hey, by the way, we might actually, uh, on a go-forward basis, we're looking at cutting down the headcount uh, because the efficiency has improved so much we can't handle the business. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Well, for all except the heads that are going to get cut. Yeah, no, but they'll go work for another company then. Because, uh, oh, oh, by the way, hopefully those were the less productive people. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the development of KPIs and knowing what's right. needed. I mean, this goes into job description and defining performance metrics and then measuring people against those. So the cream of the crop is going to rise up and the ones that have been working the system are going to fall out. So. Yeah, that's one of the first things I had to do when I got to the knock. I said, well, who's, who's processing tickets? And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, where, the, where is my stats? I need to see productivity for all the employees. Don't you produce these reports every month and evaluate them and see what's going on? And they said, no. So they pulled it for me. And I had people doing 5,000 tickets a month and I had people doing 50. Well, well, that makes it pretty easy for me to figure out who's sticking around and who's not. So, I mean, it's all really data-driven, but you got to be careful because COVID is adding a different flair to it. So you don't want to make snap decisions, but at the same time, you know, you got to look at the numbers and you got to make smart decisions after that. My boss always said to me, um, you know, you can take as much vacation time as you want as long as you're always working. So that's just part of the norm, right? I mean, especially when you get to a certain level, you have to always be available and be on calls. He didn't care if I was taking the call from my vacation in Hawaii for three weeks every January. He cared about, um, you know, the fact that I was there, that I was still getting it done and that it didn't matter if I was on vacation or not. And that's part of the whole, and I know you've talked about this on other podcasts, people take a month off at a time. Sometimes people take a month off and totally separate. I don't know that I could ever do that because I always want to know what's going on and I don't want to feel like when I get back, I'm going to be irrelevant. <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm, you know, still. It's also up. difficult to unplug at this point, right? We all have a computer in our pocket, right? So um, in some cases on our wrist and in some cases, you know, I assume we'll all be wearing glasses where we can see our texts or at our Instagram posts and everyone's cute dogs in real time. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's, you it's one of those dogs. things you couldn't, you couldn't unplug if you were in this industry, if you wanted to. And I think, you know, ignoring the phone call or ignoring the email is just that, you know, it takes a really special personality to, you know, try to really pry themselves away, which yeah. is kind of a, a, a decent segue to what I call the work-life balance with, which what Nabil calls a life-work balance. You were working at home, having just had, um, a child in 1992, um, you know, what, what, what is that like? I think you, I've heard a lot of feedback from people that are, you know, everyone's now sleeping in the office because, you know, we're working in, in, in our bedrooms. 
Um, how do you make sure to, to find that discipline? And is it, is it something that you have to be conscious of to make sure that you're available for your family and not just working all the time because it's so easy to work and not because you don't have that separation of working, you know, nine to five or whatever your hours are and then leaving the office and going home, knowing that you have that physical separation. Is that, you think that's a concern or, or there's, there's some way we should, we should make sure to think about that as everyone starts embracing work from home and work from anywhere. I think it's important to understand upfront and it's important to lay the ground rules. Because I um, have to say that if my husband calls me one more time while I'm home and says, hey, can you go do this for me? And I say, I'm working, um, but you're home. Well, yeah, but I'm working. I'm not home, you know, cleaning the house and cooking dinner right now because it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. So I think having a specific space carved out where you can work from home, if this is going to be a more permanent arrangement, is really important just so you can feel like you're in a productive environment. You're not sitting on the couch or sitting on the bed and working. Um, I think it makes you actually feel more efficient. I mean, my son, uh, my youngest changed companies and he's like, I'm going to be working from home a lot. And I said, uh, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I need to buy a desk because I need to have a defined workspace that I know I go to every day and that's where I'm working. But sometimes I catch him sitting on the bed and working. Um, so I think, you know, you got that flexibility, but I know he's in my house and I know he's working. So I'm not knocking on his door going, hey, can you take the trash out? So defining up front based on who's in your house and, and talking to your kids about, and screaming infants aren't going to listen, but when, you know, you have kids and you go, look, mommy's working right now and um, you need to give her some time. And when she can talk to you, she's going to come out and talk to you. Um, it's it's going to be important. Otherwise, people get more stressed trying to work from home because their kids are bothering them all day long. So sometimes you're going to have to find a place to put an office in your house where you can shut the door from the family and, and create that delineation space. Absolutely. So it's kind of interesting. A lot of our podcasts turn out to be really just about us, about personal experiences, life, and so on and so forth. I want to take a little bit uh, of an opportunity over here for the last few minutes that we've got left to talk about technology. Mary, you and I have spoken at several conferences, uh, particularly about networking and connectivity. Where are we at with COVID-19 and, and the hockey stick effect that we've actually seen in the significant usage in bandwidth, latency, and uh, where do you think we were at, technically speaking, and what challenges do we have today? Well, I can only say that um, at INAP, I created the more robust infrastructure between the data centers. So any companies that are co-located in our data center and trying to get to other of their locations, you know, across or around the world that also are housed in our data center, they're getting fantastic connectivity. Um, as far as companies that uh, had data centers that really weren't worried about how the uh, their clients were going to be able to communicate with the outside world and did they have enough bandwidth and is it now scalable? Are there people in the office that can go over and hook me up? Is it all software driven or do I have to physically go make cross connects? All of these things are going to all of a sudden be looked at differently. How much scalability do I have? How much bandwidth do I have available? Did I just... You know, and if this had happened two years ago with the, the network that they had, they would have been in big trouble. But now creating that robust, scalable, low latency network that ties all of their customers together is going to be super important. We talked about 5G and last mile, and 
5G and last mile is really important and it's going to be more important than ever because fiber to the home is going to help you. And a part of the issue is not just the fiber, right? We can all get good cable modems. We can all get decent broadband. Um, it's the concentration ratios that these companies have, the oversubscription rates. How many people can I get on one circuit? I do six to one or I do 80 to one. That's what's causing this problem out at, you know, the, the folks' houses, right? So I've worked in cable. I've worked in, you know, the phone company. I understand these oversubscription rates. So I call and I say, hey, what's my oversubscription rate on my pedestal outside my house? Because if I don't like it, I'm going to go switch to another company. So we only have so many options. I don't have fiber to the home at my house. So it's a struggle. Um, but I got to say my cable modem is faster than my DSL. Companies are going to have to start looking at, and when I was at the big bad cable company, pushing fiber deeper into the network, um, getting um, you know those oversubscription rates uh, down, getting better bandwidth further into the network, closer to the consumer, so that at some point you could do fiber to the home, or you could do um, you know lower concentration rates, so that customers are going to get better service at a better uh, quality. So these things are going to have to happen. Now people are looking at um, what does my network infrastructure look like in that final mile? Because now that companies like my company, um, at I know, <clears throat> we're working on the infrastructure. Everybody's going to realize, oh my God, I got to get my infrastructure up to speed. Well, that can all get done, but the final mile is going to take a long time to get done. And everybody thinks 5G is going to be the answer, but 5G only goes from your house to that person um, you know, that person's cell site or that person, wherever, wherever they have their 5G equipment. And when the backhaul in those companies and the 5G companies are the ones that have the worst backhaul, um, they're going to have to straighten out that side. So is this something that's going to happen quickly? The answer is probably no. Um, but companies have to start looking at what am I doing in my infrastructure? How do I get that faster last mile piece while these guys are fixing their you know, behind the scenes infrastructure in the middle mile and in the long in the long haul, they have to be working on that final mile or uh, we're all going to be fighting for that bandwidth again while we're trying to have a Zoom conference and 10 kids in the neighborhood are all video gaming on their consoles and all you see are blips and, and delays and, and, you know, makes my internet crash because that, that does happen. Um, I think one of the one of our um, past uh, podcast hosts that uh, you probably know also is uh, is a guy named Mark Dealey, um, and you know he posted on Twitter the other day. You know what happens when uh, the internet in your home becomes critical infrastructure when you have to establish that level of of redundancy in your home. And I think you know I benefit from being in Brooklyn, New York. I actually got a second line installed. Uh, I say this to people that, that we have Zoom. I have a gig at my laptop right now be, that's separate from my kids' Zooms and my daughter's ballet lessons and stuff because it was starting to impact the podcasts. Actually, whenever the kids logged onto something, or you know they were allowed to play video games or or whatever. But I have that benefit being in Brooklyn that has you know incredible amount of infrastructure in New York City. Most urban areas have, you know, two, three places to choose from. But on the flip side of this kind of work from anywhere, work from home philosophy, I think, is everyone looking forward to maybe depopulating some of the urban centers and spreading further out across the country where they can still accomplish their jobs. And because they're not necessarily required to be at a physical office, they can get a lot more bang for their buck, a lot more runway by going to, you know, a, a, a an area that has uh, a lower cost of living. 
um, and probably a higher quality of life in many cases. But you know, those areas tend not to have the type of coverage um, or the type of optionality that we have now. So I think it's an incredibly important point that you know, 5G is still, not only is it a significant period of time away, it's one option that when the cell phone service isn't up to par and you are a critical member of your team working from home, you know, we need to think about having you know, some criticality to uh, a network within the home because that becomes critical infrastructure in and of itself. Yeah, I know. Phil is teasing me. I'm counting the number of waves. That's how fast my internet is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody. I don't know if anybody heard that. I have a gig to my laptop. That's right, a gig to my laptop. That's awesome. I live in the hill in like very rural area, so I'm never going to get fiber here. Five G is a dream. So I either have to get DSL or I have to get a cable modem. And when you get that cable modem, if everybody else in the neighborhood has that cable modem, you're in, in deep trouble. So trying to get that point across to the big cable companies that, you know, sometimes they're our last hope and that they really have to start working on their infrastructure to make sure you can speed it up. Otherwise, you know, hopefully something else will come along soon that will, you know, be our savior. But right now that's all we got. And people, you know, that live out where I live, you know, commute into Boston every day because it's cheaper to live out here. And so no one wants to live in Brooklyn and have really great connectivity because it's expensive. So you must be really rich. But anyway. Do I have, do I have to have the fight of Brookline versus Brooklyn? I'm willing yeah, to have it time. Yeah. <laughs> but Brookline probably has great internet too. I don't live there either. Um, you know, but it really is. Final mile providers are, you know, under the gun right now. So I can see how work at home is getting and influencing everything that's going on right now. What are some of the big challenges that are going to come up with 5G? Uh, Most recently, COVID-19, we saw people burning 5G towers in Europe and UK. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So 5G became the spreader of COVID. I think that we really need to educate people on what does 5G really mean. I think everybody starts talking about something and the people who truly don't understand technology get scared because they don't know. They don't know what does 5G really mean? What is it going to do for me? What is it doing? Is it in my house? Is it reading my thoughts? Is it, you know, what's happening with this microwave things? And I, I don't get it. If you scare people um, and you don't explain it, you know, everybody just thinks we started out, you know, with cell service and then, you know, LTE, and then we're going through the G's now and we keep talking about 6G and the next one that's coming. We, I, I don't even get 4G. I was on LTE the other day. I mean, we just keep talking about these things and it's very futuristic and I think it scares people. I think 5G will be, you know, great when it gets here, but the rest of the infrastructure has to be beefed up and in the middle mile in order to be able to make it more effective, as I have spoken about on many conferences, um, because your connection back to where the application actually sits is only going to be as fast as that interconnection from the 5G provider all the way back to the application. So everything has to happen in the infrastructure as well as the final mile in order to give you a great experience with 5G down the road. What do you think is the timeline for this to be fully implemented as we implemented or migrated from analog to digital communication? Well, you know, if we actually took a step back and said, hey, why don't we just work on this until it works really well while the think tank people are working on the next stuff instead of talking about everything else that's coming. I mean, come on, I'm on LTE. I'm not even on 4G or 3G. I mean, I'm not on anything. I'm barely getting cell service. Uh, Why don't we fix the network everywhere and then we could upgrade together? Um, You know, instead of patch here, patch there, there's still so many people 
in rural America that don't even have um, internet access. They have nothing. They can't even get satellite coverage because the satellites don't work that well to get, you know, some HughesNet or some of those things. I mean, the rural broadband grants are still going out every year for people to try to build into those communities. We really need to get everybody up to speed. We really need to get everybody connected to the internet. And we actually took the time to get you know, the infrastructure in place that was scalable and that we could reach everybody so that we could do some of these upgrades faster instead of worrying about being first to the, you know, oh, I got the biggest 5G network ever. Um, I, I just think that there's so many people we're leaving behind. We can't lose sight of that. But I think 5G will be fine. I think we'll, we'll deploy it and it'll be in great areas and it'll be the same areas that always get the benefits like Brooklyn. And they get the they get those things first. And then the rest of us sit there going, oh, you know, when I drive through, I connect to 5G. Ooh, that's great. And then I go home and I have LTE. So, you know, I, I think that we really just need to fix the infrastructure period and, and we need to not worry about just being the first one to deploy something new because it's obviously scaring people in there burning down towers and yeah, maybe they should move to the rural America. They should, then they could have LTE like me. What do you think, uh, as it entails to 5G, some are some of the core benefits that are going to come out of it. So like autonomous, anything, autonomous vehicles and what else like IOT industry 4.0, what, what are some of the coolest things that are going to make other technologies happen? So I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday. So I really like autonomous vehicles. I like the thought of it, right? I like the thought of it, but I still worry about the guy who is drinking and driving and he's not in an autonomous vehicle and he hits me in, my, in his gas-powered clunker, right? So I don't think I will actually ever buy an autonomous vehicle until everybody has to have one or every manufacturer has installed the ability to have that done because I'm always worried about the next guy because I'm, you know, I'm a little skeptical. And I'm also worried about security and I'm worried about somebody hacking in and all of a sudden changing my ability to brake um, if I needed to brake because the red, the light is red and my car is not stopping. So I think we're a long way from security and a lot of those technologies and that um, that's going to be really slow. I don't really think... Um, you know, people are going to embrace it. People want the next and newest and greatest innovation. But if you think about it, they just asked everybody when the vaccine comes out for COVID, how many are going to take it? 70% said no. You don't want to always necessarily be on the forefront of something. You want other people to be the guinea pigs. Especially um, when there's a needle involved. Especially when there's a needle involved. It's very true. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, 5G is going to enable a lot of really great things to happen, but we just have to do it right. Like, let's not rush to it. Like, that's why 70% of the people don't want to be the first people to have the vaccine because they want to let, you know, other people figure out what's wrong with it first and what doesn't work about it and what the side effects are going to be. And so I think other people are going to let, you know, maybe we need to do autonomous communities, right? So, you know, in inside itself, you can have, you know, a lot of these smart cities and whatnot can have those kinds of uh, launches for autonomous vehicles and for other technologies that will help around the city. I mean, back in, I can't even think, 12, 10, 2010, Companies asked me, uh, cities asked me, can I wire up your whole, the whole city so that they can do Wi-Fi everywhere and never have to worry about their employees not being able to connect, have their cell phones actually connect to the Wi-Fi, and have everything Wi-Fi driven in the entire city? I mean, people have been wanting that for years. 
This is nothing new. It's just now we got cooler toys and we got cooler things we could do with the Wi-Fi or the 5G or whatever technology is available in the community. These are things people want and we need to get there. But I, I don't know that I see that happening in the next five years. Well, yeah, you make a great point. I mean, think uh, the core of it all, humanization and humility and humanity should be some of the core drivers behind all these advancements. I really think so. Absolutely. There's no question. There's no question. We're, we're the weak link in the chain. <laughs> yeah, computers, computers can't make mistakes unless humans do. So, Mary, any last words for our listeners? So... If I think about why, you know, why you're doing this and getting people interested in technology and getting people interested in, in this industry versus other industries, I just, you know, go back to a fundamental, what is it that you want to do? What do you, what do you like? What interests you? doesn't mean you have to be good at it today. You get mentors, you get training, you get all those things. We didn't go, I didn't go to school for data centers. I didn't go to school for working in a cable company or a phone company. It's something that I learned along the way. These are things that you can learn. These are things that if it excites you, um, if it sounds like something you're interested in, would be great field. It's always changing. Technology is always evolving. There are all kinds of things to think about and talk about. And especially for those people who go, well, what about those are the people we want in this industry? Because they're the ones that are going to second guess us. And they're going to say, I think there's a better way to do that. Those are the people that we need in this industry, the people who can think about the big picture and about how everything works together and not just that one little niche because I sit at my, my laptop every day and do this one thing. We need people who are innovative and want to be creative and, and embrace change and because technology is going to be ever-changing. So we have a lot of room for, for smart people in this industry and we need smart people in this industry that can come up with great ideas. So it's really a lot of fun to be here. And I, you know, and I look at my kids in other industries and I think some of them would be great working in technology, others, maybe not so much. And that's, I think the fundamental core of what do I like? What am I going to be good at? What do I want to do when I grow up? And this industry is a lot of fun. There's so many things you can do. You can work in, you know, like I said, telecom, cable, data centers. I've done M&A. I've done technology development for residential cable products. That was a, that was a gas. I read contracts. I do agreements. I work with carriers. I work with customers. I work internally. I drive teams and, and create leadership opportunities for my team members to become better leaders and lead by, these are all fun and exciting things that you could do in telecom. There are some great and awesome people, a lot of who you've had on the podcast, and I'm sure a lot of future podcasters. It's just a great place to work and it's, it's a lot of fun. And there's so much mobility to change within the industries because it's really a good cross-pollination, even software. You know, I could go work in a software company. So there's a lot of opportunity here. And I think there's a lot more opportunity in technology and the technology sector than there is in a lot of the other industries for learning new things and developing yourself with lots of cross-functional skills. So I think working in technology is an awesome opportunity for, for people to think about. You don't have to have a degree in order to jump into this field. You don't have to have a degree in engineering to jump in this field. You just have to want to really submerse yourself in evolving technology and constantly changing environment and knowing that you can make an impact in that environment. We'll train you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. 
and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.